Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. And I am joined today by two men who definitely did not smuggle Icelandic women into their team hotel. I am joined by Caleb Rhodes. Hello, and speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And I am also joined by Nathan Strauss. No comments. Today, we're going to continue with our three-part Premier League preview series last time we talked about some of the teams that we think are going to be lingering towards the relegation battle and also the three promoted teams this time we're going to be delving into the mid-table sides and potentially teams looking for a europa league place maybe even pushing a bit beyond that but i'm gonna i'm gonna peel back the curtain a little bit today on this podcast you know normally we record on a weekend afternoons you know the the sun is setting a light breeze outside it's still a little warm you know, we can wrap up recording, go outside, enjoy the embers of sunset and, and the warmth of daylight. But uh, today, it's, it's a since since we're gonna get these preview pods out to you thick and fast. It's a it's a late night pod, ladies and gentlemen. And it's a it's a late night pod, and uh, things might get a little sensual here tonight on Corner Kick as we break down these uh, these mid table sides. So I recommend that you uh, pour yourself a nice glass of wine or a beverage of your choice. You turn on that smooth jazz and you listen to us break down some of the latest transfers and some of the most sensual names in soccer, like James Rodriguez, Fabio Silva, and Ryan Frazier. And you know, we're going to start our mid-table preview with perhaps the sexiest club of them all. Oof. And that is Burnley. Caleb Rhodes, take us to Burnley. Burnley, finishing smack dab in mid-table last year. In 10th place, they are probably one of the most uninspiring sides in England, but they get the job done, and that's all really you can ask of them, except they have witnessed a mass exodus of players all on loans or frees this summer, and they have brought in the singular Will Norris, the goalie from Wolverhampton Wanderers, who I imagine will be a backup for them, considering they have like five goalies. This might be Burnley starting to trend down. That's my take. Yeah, Nathan, we know that... (laughs) (laughs) We're not looking too good for the old Burnley. Uh, Nathan, we know that there's been some tension between Sean Dyche and the Burnley chairman in terms of recruitment re-signing players or they were able to offer players like Phil Bardsley a new deal to cover up some of the holes in the squad from the end of last season but you can tell that Burnley have really been impacted by the financial implications of COVID-19 and they could be looking at uh, potentially sliding into that relegation battle for the first time in a couple of seasons. I think this really goes back to their recruitment strategy over the last you know three years that they've been in the Premier League we know that they are basically Brexit personified as a club. And while we've seen teams like Burnmouth, who I think are perhaps a more inspiring version of their team when you compare sort of their facilities and their proximity to major cities, um, Burnmouth at least were able to sign players who could then be sold on for massive profits. Like Nathan Ake um, sort of bailed them out this summer. 
Um, and you look at Burnley and you think, well, they really only have one or two players who you, who you could see going for upwards of 15 million in, in Dwight McNeil and uh, one of Tarkovsky and Ben Mee. And there's even been reports that Tarkovsky is going to be looked at by Chelsea as their perhaps Chelsea's last uh, defensive signing of the summer. So I do think this team is going to be <laughs> no higher than 12th in the table when all is said and done. And I think uninspiring is just the right word for them. They play a rigid 4-4-2. They are a team that defend incredibly, incredibly well, but they've had disciplinary issues and a lack of a clear-cut uh, goal score. I mean, are they really going to rely on Ashley Barnes and, and, Jay Rodriguez. and Jay Rodriguez to power them to the next level? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they are a surprise candidate for relegation this year. I think Burnley, they have solidified themselves as a Premier League club, which is an incredible achievement for a club of their size, coming from also an area of their size. I think losing a player like Jeff Hendrick is quite tough because he's a versatile midfielder that he can be deployed in the right, in midfield, defensive midfield, attacking midfield. Aaron Lennon, I think, is also a huge miss for them in terms of experience on the wide areas and pace as well. I think they are going to look a little bit one-dimensional with only Dwight McNeil being that fire spark for their team but chris wood and jay rodriguez and ashley barnes they're three capable players they can knock in a few crap goals to quote the men and blazers podcast so i i think burnley they are solid enough and they have quality players like nathan was saying me tarkovsky they're very very solid center back pairing for the premier league and i also think they haven't lost anyone too too significant mcneil is still at the club um, Nick Pope is still at the club. I think they could be maybe in a relegation scrap early in the season, but I think they turn around towards the end of the season. Maybe they finish somewhere in like 15th. I don't know. I First of all, I think Jeff Hendrick is actually a huge loss, especially because he's going to Newcastle, who are going to you know another team in and around mid-table, I would say. Aaron Lennon, who you know isn't a starter. He's 33. He's going to Turkey now. But he did play some, you know, important minutes off the bench and definitely gave them, you know, a little something different out wide. I think this team just lost a lot of depth, especially in midfield, where they didn't have a lot of cover to begin with. And I think the strength of this team, as you guys mentioned, really is their defense. But now that the midfield is thinned out, I worry that the defense is going to be under even more pressure than before. And the cracks are going to start to show slightly. Do they have that coverage to shield the defense? Yeah. And the technical quality to really bring the ball out from the back. Right, which I don't I don't think they do necessarily. And I will touch on Newcastle coming up in just a minute, but I think that Burnley are going to be in real trouble this season uh, and they might be paying the price for the last couple of years of mediocrity. All right, well, that is Burnley. Watch this space <laughs> uh, for more news <laughs> from, from the Burnley. Uh, let us move from Burnley to perhaps a bit more of a metropolitan area in London. Let's move to West Ham United. Lads, West Ham, they always flatter to deceive. I think we're always, you know, a bit tricked into thinking they've made good business. And then towards the end of the season, we find them, we find once again that they're led by Mikel Antonio at the striker position, David Moyes at the helm. And they're fighting off another relegation battle after spending quite a bit amount of money last summer on players like Sebastian Hilaire and the like. This season, they have completed a permanent move for Thomas Suchek, 
who has really impressed me ever since the restart. He was banging in the goals and contributing on the defensive end as well. So I think he is an all-around midfielder that I think is going to contribute quite a bit to this team. They also haven't lost anyone particularly significant other than Grady Diangana, who they sold to West Brom for $18 million. And the controversy that came with that transfer was that club captain Mark Noble came out on Twitter and criticized the club for making the move. He said he was gutted to see Diagana go. So I think the fact that they haven't re- reinforced their team financially in any capacity other than Suchek might be starting to cause some anxiety in the West Ham dressing room. In a way, this is the least West Ham transfer window that we've seen from West Ham in a while. And we know that they have signed incredibly poorly in the past. And just like in the NBA, when you see teams that spend poorly in the years when the salary cap goes up, when you see a dip in the transfer market like we're seeing now because of COVID, teams that have spent poorly in the last five years get heavily uh, penalized. And we saw them sell Albion Ajeti to Celtic, um, who was one of their incoming transfers just a summer ago. Obviously, they lost Grady Diangana. They sort of trimmed the fat to a certain extent with older players like Carlos Sanchez and Pablo Zabaleta departing as well. You know, you you tend to think that there's a bit of quality in this West Ham team. Obviously, the longer they're able to keep hold of Declan Rice, the better their team is. Um, and Antonio himself looked pretty good at the concluding uh, portion of last year. This is a West Ham team that finished with a pretty decent run of form in their last four games. They took eight points from uh, from 12, including a draw against uh, United. I do think mid-table is probably the ceiling for them this year. Looking at their squad, I'm not entirely sold on you know, Jared Bowen, Pablo Fernals at this level yet. If Lanzini can stay injury-free, if Jack Wilshere can stay injury-free, there are a lot of question marks around this team. Uh, whether Sebastian Haller can sort of kick on from... Or stay fit, even. Yeah, a, a pretty disappointing... Uh, freshman campaign big questions about past big money signings i think that this is a west ham team that is ripe for an 11th place finish caleb this is a talented team let's not make any bones about it they have felipe anderson Mikel antonio who is an all action all effort player you know players like Issa diop who should be producing things at the premier league level we know he's a talented center back and david moyes who knows the division inside and out is there any chance that this team gets in massive trouble again? I don't think so. I think that I actually like that for once West Ham didn't buy like a flurry of random attacking players of various quality, none of whom are English, few of whom who speak English, and then just expect that that's going to work out. I like that this is more of a settled team. I think Suchek, as you guys mentioned, was a huge lift to them at the end of the year. I think like Aston Villa, the fact that they're able to keep a hold of a player like Declan Rice is very important. I personally like Jared Bowen. I think he was really good in the championship. And I think, you know, with you more weeks of training under his belt in the offseason, he could be ready to sort of do something important for the team. I agree that this team is not going to be a Wolves story and fight for, you know, an outside Europa League place. I don't think they have a talent in the team that is sort of truly transcendent. Um, But at the same time, I do think that they will be safely in midfield. Um, And frankly, given the sort of worry that they faced at the end of last year where they were close to the relegation zone, that is a place they will be happy 
to be. Moving on from West Ham then, we can turn to Newcastle United, who have made some, you know, relatively big signings uh, in the last few days. Maybe not signings their fans would have expected if the Saudi Arabia deal had gone through, but important signings nonetheless. Nick, take us to Tyneside. Yeah, I think Jordy's will be happy with some of the business that they've made over the past couple of days, bringing in Callum Wilson, who is a proven Premier League forward from Bournemouth. I think the big question surrounding him is whether or not he'll be able to stay fit throughout the course of the campaign for Newcastle. I think scoring goals is a real issue for them. Joe Linton, their record signing, has not panned out in the way that they wanted him to. And my hot take about Joe Linton is that I don't think he's even a number nine. I think he's probably better sitting in the hole as a pseudo number 10. So they really need to sort out that striker position. And maybe they've accomplished that with Callum Wilson. They spent a pretty 20 million pounds on him. I think the most interesting transfer for me is Ryan Frazier, obviously the winger from Bournemouth who they signed on free after his contract expired and he didn't play in the restarted games for the, his former team. This is a guy who had 14 assists in the Premier League two seasons ago 18 assists in total over the past two seasons. So this is a dude who can produce significant statistical numbers. If he can be the Ryan Frazier of two years ago and not the Ryan Frazier who looked uncommitted last season, there's going to be a huge lift for Alan St. Maximin on the wings to have another player comparable to him in his skill set. You mentioned a couple of guys. I think that a couple of guys who have not yet been confirmed on the list that we're looking at, but who whose deals are likely to be going through in the next couple of days. Jamal Lewis from uh, Norwich. Rob Holding is going to be going in on loan, according to David Ornstein, unless Arsenal changed their mind at the last minute. And Connor Gallagher from uh, Chelsea's U23 side are all guys who could make an immediate impact. And Newcastle, I'm, I have a lot of sympathy for them um, because as we've discussed uh, a lot this past spring, their ownership group and Mike Ashley in particular have not exactly done bits for them. Um, and they are one of the proudest groups of fans out there. Uh, I could definitely see them finishing higher than 10. I think the shocking thing, Caleb, was that last season, Rafa Benitez left the club under a lot of tension between him and Mike Ashley. And then Steve Bruce is brought in to sort of be the captain of a sinking ship in many ways. And he brought a lot of organization to the club. I think he was someone who is who can be a bit of a yes man for Ashley and work with the pieces that the stingy Newcastle chairman is willing to give them. And I think he can organize this team in a way that's not only going to keep them in the Premier League, but he can probably propel them further than 13th than he did last season. I think we could see... If Callum Wilson and Ryan Frazier can stay fit and Alan Maximin can develop and players like the Longstaff brothers can develop a little bit more of a presence in midfield, they have a solid defense in Jamal Shells and Fabian Schar. Those guys come in that Nathan was talking about, you know, holding Jamal Lewis. I think that's that's team that like, I guess I, I understand that they're probably disappointed that they're not getting the Manchester City plus level money that they wanted from Saudi Arabia. But this is a pretty competitive Premier League team if they get all these pieces across the line. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think the mistake a lot of mid-table teams make is, you know, they get their mid-table finish and then they get a little more cash than normal and then they splurge it on some random foreign player who has, you know, there's a reason that he's going to a mid-table Premier League team and not a, you know, Champions League level side. I think the move is always to buy sensibly 
And, you know, with Jeff Hendrick, Callum Wilson, and Ryan Frazier, you know, Jeff Hendrick was on a free. Callum Wilson was 20 million, but he's a proven player in the Premier League and, you know, continued to score goals for a Bournemouth team that struggled at time. Those are all sensible transfers of players that know the league and their known quantities. And I think that only bodes well uh, for a team that, despite the disappointment, although I'm not sure I'm personally that disappointed that. Saudi Arabia didn't take over this club, you know, will will still likely improve this year. So maybe a positive season coming up for the Saudi-less Jordies and Steve Bruce's boys. But lads, let's move on to the South Coast. Talking about the Titanic a little bit earlier. This is the town where the Titanic was built and set sail from. And, you know, their uh, 9-0 loss at home towards the beginning of last season had some Titanic-esque vibes to it, but they managed to avoid the iceberg in the end and come out looking stronger than they have in, I would say, a few years under Half Hosentittle. Lads, it's Southampton. Southampton are a team that made maybe a top three transfer, I think, so far out of all Premier League teams. In Mohamed Salisu from Real Valladolid, one of La Liga's most promising center backs, I think has the potential to be Southampton's next great export. And yes, maybe it says something about their team that I'm looking at a player who they just brought in and thinking about his resale value in two or so years, but they really haven't done that. Liverpool much are going to be licking their lips <laughs> right. in <about> two years <laughs> when they Salisu. come in for a 50 million bid for Salisu. Right. But I mean, Salisu is someone who is garnering universal acclaim from scouts and pundits alike. They did some decent business. They sold Pierre-Emil Hoiberg. Um, to Spurs, which we'll get to next time. Um, And everything else that they have done has pretty much been youth players or loans, um, aside from confirming the purchase option on Kyle Walker Walker Peters, who did quite well for them in that right-back role. I'm a big fan of Ralph Hasenthal. They finished the season on an incredibly, incredibly hot note. I just think a lot of their success this season will depend on whether Danny Ings regresses to his 2018 form or if you can keep up his scoring ways. Caleb, they given they've given Halfhouse and Huddle the time to implement his will on the team. You know, there are many clubs that I think after a nine-nil loss at home would have probably sacked the coach. They stuck by him and they're reinvesting some money into this transfer window to bring in promising players like Salisu, who is a uh, you know, FM Wunderkin. Uh, and I certainly think he is a wonder kid in real life. We'll see if another season of Hasenhuttle's dynamic style can lead them to better success in the Premier League. And, and you know... I don't have a point. I just ran out of something to say. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do know. Um... <laughs> I know exactly what you're going to say, Nick. Um, I, I think you guys have both made good points about how Hassan Hoodle has, you know, not only steadied the ship, but also sort of been given the time to weather one of the, if not the league record shellacking um, in their 9-0 loss to Leicester earlier this year. I think, once again, Kyle Walker-Peters was on loan from Spurs for the second half of last year and did well. So buying him for 12 mil. as you Listen, guys- if we're going by Pokemon logic, buying Kyle Walker Peters can only be a good thing. He's like the third stage evolution of Kyle Walker. You know, we start with Kyle. You go to Kyle Walker. They evolved him up and they got Kyle Walker Peters. To me, this is a win. I was going to say you subtract the 
parties and then you add Peter's. Um, <laughs> you subtract this <laughs> and add a third surname. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> back to my point. Uh, I agree. <laughs> I agree that... Uh, it's a late night pod, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this, these are the late night uh, vibes we were talking about. I hope that you've invented some type of drinking game to go along with this. I'm not sure. I agree that Salisu is a good signing for them. I'm curious to see how the team does without Hoisberg, who I think is an incredibly average midfielder, so maybe things won't you know, change all that much. But He was their captain, though. I think that's the one worry, is that they have sold off someone who is in a leadership position. Right. Perhaps that's his only positive is he has, he has solid leadership capabilities. But as in terms of his actual play, he's not adding very much. Like James Ward-Prowse is definitely their star midfielder. Um, and then they can have, you know, Oriol Romeu kind of cover defensively. Um, but it'll definitely be interesting to see because they haven't, you know, signed someone to replace him. I think the question with this season, though, is, you know, what does Southampton expect Hassan Huddle to achieve? Because there's no chance this squad gets close to Europe. I also don't think even if we see a regression from Danny Ings, which is like likely, I would say, just regressing to the mean, I don't think they're really in jeopardy of relegation either. So I think at the end of next season, the club will probably be in a position where they'll be like, you know, do we want to be more ambitious like we were when we first got to the Premier League? And is Hassan Hudel the guy to do that? And are we going to give him the resources? Or are we fine just kind of teetering between ninth and 14th place kind of perpetually? Once again, there are worse positions to be in, like definitely better that than to be stuck in the relegation zone. But I do think that, you know, we've seen Hassan Hudel steady the ship, you know, get them to a mid-table finish. And now the question is, what is his project or is there a project or have we kind of reached a dead end? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Caleb. I, I think you bring in someone like Hassan Hiddel who has that, who brings that foreign pedigree from teams like RB Leipzig. And we know that they propelled onwards in their trajectory as a club. So it's about whether or not he'll have the time and investment with this project in order to maybe take them to the next level. And if not, what is that signal about the ambitions of Southampton and also the ambitions towards keeping a manager like Hassan Huddle, who I think after this season, maybe some clubs in the top six or top seven will be looking towards him to uh, take over towards the top of the division. Absolutely right. Do we want to move on to last year's perhaps most overachieving club in Sheffield United? The Blades. I'm very excited to talk about Sheffield United because I think they have proven to be one of the most shockingly well-run outfits to have arrived in the Premier League in recent memory. They played a very, very organized 3-5-2 system that took the Premier League by storm last season, and they are looking to build on their success by signing goalkeeper Aaron Ramsdale from Bournemouth, who had a pretty good maiden season in the Premier League for the relegation-threatened Bournemouth. I think he was one of their MVPs in trying to keep them in the Premier League. He's replacing Dean Henderson, who has obviously gone back to Manchester United to compete with David De Gea for that number one spot. They have signed promising defender Jaden Bogle from Derby. They have signed another promising defender, Max Lowe, from Derby. And they have signed another promising defender, the Welsh centre-back, who is the starter for Wales in Ethan Ampadu on loan from Chelsea. Lads, these might be some understated moves, I would say, 
But I think that these are really intelligent moves from Chris Wilder just to reinforce that style that they played last season to great effect. They were a defense-first team. They had one of the best defenses in the league. They faltered a little bit after the restart, but in general, very solid. And they've really doubled down on that. I think I would have liked to see them try to get an attacking option. I personally think that Callum Wilson would have been an even better signing for Sheffield. I like Ampadu. I think he can play both in defense and in midfield, and he gives them a lot of options. I'm sure Chelsea will be very happy to see him getting some Premier League minutes. I just wonder, though, without having bolstered that offense at all, really, um, and it's not like their midfield got any more creative or has any more goals in it, can this team rely on defense alone for another year? I mean, we often see in the Premier League that, you know, a system takes one year to be figured out and in the second year teams can really punish them. Um, So maybe reshuffling the deck with the defense will be good, but I also worry that it won't be as effective this time around despite the reinforcements. Yeah, Nathan, they'll have another season of Sonderberga, our full season of Sonderberga, the uh, promising Norwegian midfielder that they brought in in January to sit in and be that sort of metronomic player for them in the midfield. But I think Caleb is right that if you look at their attacking players, they took some punts on guys like Ricario Zivkovic and Ollie McBurney that I don't think paid out in the way that they might have hoped. I think for a long time last season, their top goal scorer was John Fleck <laughs> uh, flying in from the back. Maybe they do need to look at investing somewhere up top in order to secure their place in the mid-table of the Premier League again. Yeah, it's an incredibly hard position to sign for because I think the strikers in Sheffield's team do a lot more than just score goals. I actually was very, very impressed with Dave McGoldrick uh, when I saw him play a couple times. But then again, they have a couple of really, really aging guys. you got McGoldrick, who's 32, obviously club legend. Billy Sharp is going on 35 now as he has he's approaching... Uh, his 100th goal with the club. So I'm very excited for this team. I think they made a couple of great signings. I think we've seen a lot of players have success when getting signed um, from the championship. Um, pretty much following Dele Ali's move from MK Dons to Spurs. Um, and I think that's sort of a new trend for teams who are trying to outsmart the market. Getting Aaron Ramsdale to replace player of the season, Dean Henderson, makes sense as you take pretty much the best available goalkeeper Um, for a reasonable price. I think that Sheffield will probably hope to challenge for Europe again. Um, But I could, I think I'll see, I think I see them probably around ninth, but I definitely think there's the potential that teams figure them out a bit um, and that they falter a little bit, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I couldn't see them finishing any lower than, you know, 12th or 13th. Maybe this is something that I was thinking about a little bit when I think about Sheffield United. Maybe it's a case of they have another year of success because teams are so bamboozled by Marcelo Bielsa's system at Leeds that they're going to be, Leeds are going to be the new hotness. Leeds are going to have a great couple of, first couple of weeks that allows Sheffield United to kind of like get the spotlight taken off of them for a little bit in order to slowly and gradually pick up some points while leads are in the while leads are at the forefront of you know the media circus well lads i want to take us from los blades to los lobos and by los lobos i want to bring a little bit of iberian flavor to this podcast and discuss 
the Portuguese outfit that is Wolverhampton Wanderers. Come the big news coming out of Wolves in the past couple of days is that they have splashed the cash in order to acquire their record signing FC Porto Wonder Kid striker Fabio Silva. <laughs> this is this is literally a transfer that I would make on like football manager and then immediately get sacked by the board for spending too much money on a single player. I mean, Fabio Silva, again, a player with a tremendous uh, reputation as an 18-year-old, but $35 million, and it's a ton of money, especially in this particular market. Yes, Wolves have had a couple of outgoing departures. They had Matt Doherty, who was a pretty nailed-on player for them last year, depart for Spurs. Whoa, 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 whoa. You got to say it like a true Irishman. Matt Doherty. Matt Doherty. Matt Doherty. Uh, but you had him depart for Spurs in the least, in the second most underwhelming transfer that Spurs made this summer, um, which I suppose we'll get Dude, to. Dude, we can talk time. about this when we, get to, when we get to Spurs next week, but the freaking video package. Oh my God, it was, Dude, it's actually embarrassing. If I were a Spurs fan, I would be very upset at how tactless their reveal was. And I actually think that there's... there's Do you want to explain it just for those who've seen it? So Matt Doherty um, is a lifetime Arsenal fan and has a number of, or had rather, a number of pro-Arsenal tweets going back to like 2014. This guy's an OG. Yeah, he's 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 not a plastic. He's a true Arsenal fan. Um, and Spurs basically in their introduction video had him go back and delete all of these tweets, which is kind of weird to me as an Arsenal fan, because if I had, if Arsenal signed a player who was a Spurs fan, I would not want us to acknowledge it. Yeah. Like why all. even acknowledge like, it? Why bring very, attention to it? Right, it's, it's terrible optics. It's like, okay, yes, we, as a club who have historically been slightly smaller than our rivals, are now going to like force our new signing to like <laughs> renounce his like childhood cheering for a bigger team. It just, it felt very weird to me. It's a little but... cultural revolution for me. <laughs> no. <laughs> Jose Mourinho is actually chairman now. Um, <laughs> but um, chairman Mourinho. No, no, but... it's chairman Moo. <laughs> chairman Moo. <laughs> Uh, but again, just like it's <laughs> a so late late night pod, <laughs> um, anyways, back to what I was saying. You Jose saw- is always watching. Respect, 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 man, respect, respect. Uh, you you have pretty clear gaps in their squad after losing Doherty. You saw them sell Helder Costa to Leeds, who was one of their rotation options on the wings. And I feel like over the past couple of years, our big critique of of Wolves is that their squad depth has been incredibly thin. And I don't think that they've done that much to address that and spending, you know, $44 million, 35 million pounds on an 18 year old striker. When you have a nailed on first team striker, like Raul Jimenez, especially when you're spending that money on a player who's made, who scored two goals at the senior level is a little bit unwise, even when they got a good, um, backup center back in uh, Marsal from Lyon for under 2 million. Yeah. Yeah. Caleb, we're talking about punts. This is like a, uh, like fourth quarter, 75 yard field goal type type style punt in my opinion. Yeah. So let me, let me, let me set the scene for you. This team, which has no depth, has an aging Joao Moutinho who's well into his 30s. They sell their right back and their response is to buy an unproven Portuguese guy pretty much just because he's Portuguese. 
and a 31-year-old defender who's primarily a center back and or a left back. Now, I'm once again, I have nothing against Marsal, but like you should have signed a right back. They needed to sign a center midfielder. I think it would have been a much better summer for them if they had kept Helder Costa to give them some depth and then used in the 35 million or whatever that they have to buy a, a right back and a center midfielder. Doesn't even need to be a great center midfielder. Like Hoidberg, right, went for 15 million. Like you can buy a kind of Premier League quality average player for like 15 to 20. This was not the summer they needed. And I think what motivated them was probably the sense that they've gotten really close the past few years. But as we talked about when the Premier League ended, they kind of lost it towards the end. They didn't really have the sort of final push. And so they wanted a flashy attacking player. But once again, I'm not sure an 18-year-old unproven player is going to be the guy, you know, has a high probability of being the guy that's going to like make the difference for you. So I think this is actually a pretty bad summer. And I wouldn't be surprised that, especially as, you know, teams like Spurs and Arsenal have retooled a little bit, Wolves sort of push further down into the mid table rather than, you know, pushing for fifth or sixth place, which is probably their goal. Yeah, lads, I don't mean to mind the rumor mill. And I agree with everything that Caleb just said. I don't mean to mind the rumor mill a little bit, but I read today that Wolves are looking to rival Manchester United for the signing of Portuguese left back Alex Tellez or Tellez from FC Porto, who is a quite a good left back, but it doesn't address once again, they have Ruben Ruben Vinagre, Vinagre, who can play at left back and he's quite capable. So I think this is another case of Maybe like at Arsenal, you're seeing Kaya Herbachan, the super agent, exercise his will on the club somewhat. This is a case of Jorge Mendes, the Portuguese super agent. I think securing an ironclad grip on a lot of Wolves' business, and it could be a case of it was once a positive thing, you know, their relationship with Mendes, his relationship with Nuno, his relationship with these Portuguese talents. And even he's he was Matt Doherty's agent. And he's also Jose Mourinho's agent. So I'm sure that that transfer was pretty easy to navigate for uh, Doherty and Wolves and Mourinho as well. So I think this is maybe a case, Nathan, of a super agent getting a little bit too much of a vice grip on this team. Yeah, and as much as we sort of mock or have have sort of poked fun at how Wolves are basically a Portuguese exclave, it could really come back to bite them especially as they didn't end up in Europe last year because Arsenal won the FA Cup. If you if you look at what their plan would have been from when the new owners took effect um, to now, they would have planned on being in Europe last year, especially given the circumstances around last season. And this year is the year that they regress a little bit. And as good as Nuno Espiritu Santo is, it wouldn't surprise me if he might seek pastures greener um, if this year can't be at least equal to last year in terms of their eventual position in the table. Right, right. I mean, like before the whole Portuguese thing was cute, but now it's just myopic and frankly detrimental to the advancement of their club. Now it's just a joke, right? It's just, it's become a punchline almost. Yeah. Like you saw the reaction of the signing of, of Silva and like someone pulled up on football manager, like one of the requirements in order to manage Wolves that you sign <laughs> Portuguese players. Like it, it's become, it's gotten to the point where it's become predictable and a punchline and maybe not a positive point for the team to build off of in a, in a way that we thought they might have a few seasons a few seasons ago when they were challenging for European places. Wolves on the downswing, but now 
with our last preview of the day, maybe looking at a team that could be on the upswing. The name's Bond, James Rodriguez, <laughs> Everton. <laughs> Ugh, it seems like every summer for the last like 10 years, we've been like a team that might be on the upswing this year. <laughs> Again, Everton seemed to be a team that literally makes improvements to their squad every single year. And in every iteration, they have failed. Uh, and we're talking about a team that has lit- has gone through managers like, oh God, like a record label goes through stars. I mean, I do believe in Ancelotti and I would like to believe in this project because I, there's a little bit of romance about Everton. I, I don't know whether it's Goodison Park or their fans or sort of how they have been a long-suffering club, almost akin to Arsenal in a way. If you're looking for a team that has made exciting transfers, I mean... They, they brought in basically an entire midfield that I think are ready to compete for a Europa League spot in Alan Abdullah Decore from Watford and James Rodriguez. This Everton team is pretty much going to be the Napoli team Ancelotti would have had this season if he wasn't sacked there. He's brought in Alan. I feel like we all thought James was going to like end up in Italy somewhere. Probably Dude, we said it on this podcast. We said that James would end up at Napoli. Yeah. And and we know that Ancelotti just loves this man. He's managed him at Madrid. He brought him in on loan at Bayern. The third now, time he signed James. Yeah. So the man <laughs> loves James. He's essentially retooled his entire center midfield. It looks like they're probably going to switch to a 4-2-3-1 next year with James being in a kind of cam role. Um, and then probably that involves Richarlison moving out to the wing. I think this either this is kind of like the go big or go home moment for Everton um, because they're kind of throwing away like Gilfie Sigurdsson. I don't see getting that many minutes. Tom Davies has kind of stalled out in his development and he's definitely not getting in ahead of Ducure or Allen. So this is Ancelotti being like, yo, you brought me in. I want to have some fun. Let me try for your Europa League spot. Let's see if we can do it. And I think there's a possibility of it working. So this is how I, I envision this summer playing out for Carlo Ancelotti in Everton. He's sitting in his office. You know, he's got a cigar in one hand. He's got Fahad Mashiri on the phone in the other. Um, the, the, the tones of Luciano Pavarotti are playing in the background. He's like eating some veal ossobuco on the table. You know, it's a real Italian vibe in the office. He's looking over the team sheet. He's got Mashiri on the phone. He's like, listen, Fahad, Tom Davies, Andre Gomez, Girfi Sigurdsson. I need to bring in Alan James Rodriguez. He's like, literally just, I need this team. This midfield is anemic uh, last season. He resorted to his traditional 4-4-2, which he has used throughout the course of his career. Uh, it has a very global flair to it which i think will appease a lot of everton fans who have been looking for a little bit more of that worldly star someone to be that crossover talent that gets a little bit more international eyes on them and i think hamas rodriguez could be that guy for them i think this this man is immensely popular across the globe particularly in north america south america while on paper these are good transfers we have seen time and time again everton make good transfers on paper and they don't fit the complexion of what they currently have in their team. Because if we look at their defense, they still have Yuri Mina. They still have Michael Keane, Seamus Coleman at right back. I don't know if they 
exercise the option to purchase Sidibe. That is not a particularly convincing defensive line. And I understand Dekure is going to sit in front of them and put in work and Alan the same is going to be that tried and tested center center midfielder. But they still have Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who is good for about 10 to 12 Premier League goals a season. They still have players like Theo Walcott at the club. So this is a real like Frankenstein's monster of a team to me. And maybe it will come good. You know, maybe it will. But so many times we've seen that Everton just don't get it right when it comes to assembling a balanced team. And I think this is another example of them going out and splashing the cash on marquee names that they think are going to bring them eyeballs, like the Richarlison transfer and like the Gilby Sigurdsson transfer. But in the end, I think it's just going to be another case of they finish eighth and it's a relatively disappointing season for them. So one of the things that I think is very weird about Everton is that when you go to their website, they tout their stars in their like little header. So you Google Everton and it says the only official source of news about Everton, including manager Carlo Ancelotti and stars like Richarlison, Yeri Mina and Jordan Pickford. Nothing screams stardom like. Oh Jordan God, Pickford. I forgot about Jordan Pickford. Um, I so I actually. Oh my I, God. I, I actually they're they they are my candidate for um, biggest disappointment uh, this year. I really think that they will finish about fifteenth or fourteenth, and Jeez, could, wow. and it could really prove to be their undoing, especially as they look to relocate to a newer ground. Um, and that's not to say that, I mean, not to play both sides here, but I think it's totally possible that, like Nick said, they finish an eighth, which would be a very Everton finish, um, and that all is said and done. But yes, you can be optimistic and say, okay, they just brought in, you know, the leading tackler from Serie A and uh, the best player from Watford who just went down. But you can also look at that and say, wow, Decore was, you know, a starting center midfielder on a got team relegated. Got relegated. Right, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, again, I... I feel like we've been very bullish on Everton in the past for making good signings. And while these signings look good on paper, there are a lot of potential downsides and Everton are a team that really seem to thrive on the energy of their fans, especially given how close the pitch is at Goodison to the stand. And without fans, again, I'm not sure how the sort of club spirit is necessarily going to be there for them to push on in the way that they'd like to. Yeah, I think the big thing is Mashiri wants to get out of the shadow of Liverpool. And that's really hard to do when Liverpool are at the apex of their game right now. If you invest willy-nilly in the team and you know you throw $50 million at Watford for Richarlison, you throw $35 million at Real Madrid for James Rodriguez, $30 million at Jordan Pickford, you throw however much they spent on Yuri Mina and Lucas Digne uh, to bring them in from Barcelona... You have these big money acquisitions that you think are going to bring a little bit of international flavor. And it's the same thing that we were talking about with West Ham. You know, they bring in flashy foreign exports without really considering how to integrate them into the lifeblood and the spine of the team. And also, Hamas Rodriguez, when, when you think of Hamas Rodriguez, what do you think of? That goal in the 2014 World Cup. 2014 was six years ago. This man has had six years of disappointment. I understand that he's familiar with Ancelotti, he's familiar with Ancelotti's system, and he might thrive in an environment where it's all about Hamas, because I'm pretty sure that a lot of the play is going to go through him this season. I think it's a case of Hamas might be just like a little bit washed. He's still a, a huge name globally, and I think it's a coup for Everton 
to get someone with such a massive star with such massive star power attached to them. But I just don't think he's the player that Everton fans think he is anymore. I think Hamas can thrive under Ancelotti and in a position where he's the first name on the team sheet for the first time since probably the 2014-15 season. And I think if he can stay injury-free, which is a question for him, I think that unlike, you know, players like Felipe Anderson at West Ham, which, you know, is kind of a, a natural comparison here, I think, who kind of flirted with being, you know, a top player in the world, but never really made the step. And if anything, by going to West Ham when he was, you know, young, sort of prevented that step. Hamas is a player who actually has been at the apex of world football. Um, and I think Ancelotti is clearly someone who believes in him. He probably recognizes that this is a chance for him to put his stamp on a team. And I think he will do well. I think he has quality and I think he just needs to be unleashed. Um, and I, I look forward to Everton unleashing him. So I, I remain more bullish than you guys. I certainly don't think Everton are going to finish in like 14th or 15th place. I think that's pretty absurd. Do you think, are you agreeing with like the eighth place finish that I threw out there? Yeah, I think eighth place is likely, especially if Wolves and Sheffield regress and open up some space um, in the top half of the table a little bit more. Well, that is our preview of what could potentially be the mid-table sides this season. Certainly a lot of dynamic movement going on in all of these clubs, except for maybe Burnley, who have uh, literally spent nothing this summer. But we are going to move on and continue with our review slash reactions to Tottenham All or Nothing, the fabulous Amazon documentary, which just keeps on giving. We're going to talk about episode two, which sees Jose Mourinho really trying to exercise his will on some of his star players in his you know first couple weeks, first couple games of management. I would say that this episode provided a lot more of a candid look at the way Jose sets out to uh, set his team up and the way he works with interpersonal relationships than episode one did. Yeah, I thought this episode was much, much more intriguing. And I, it sort of made me want to recant my statement about how I wouldn't like to see Arsenal um, undergo a similar kind of documentary. I thought there were a couple of highlights in this episode. I think one, the halftime team talk where the cameras picked up Jose telling Serge Aurier that he wanted him to push further up the pitch um, as sort of more of a right midfielder in a game against Olympiacos where they were trailing 2-0. And then you got to immediately see how he contributed to two of the four goals that Spurs scored in that second half. Um, I thought that was really, really cool. And I thought the producers did an excellent job of using that sort of low angle, almost touchline view of him and sort of dialing in on him. Uh, and I think as, as fans of sort of tactics in general, um, that was pretty much the most direct way I've ever seen tactics translated into actual results. Um, and then, of course, the great interviews that he had with Dele Ali and Eric Dyer, one of which was in Portuguese, were real standout moments for me. Right. I think what was really good about this episode is, you know, as sort of commentators, as people that think about the game, we often speculate as to the effect of man management or how that happens and the effect of tactical tweaks. And what this episode showed and like purposefully was these kind of like one-to-one -one correlations between, you know, Mourinho telling Deli Ali that he had to really look at himself and decide whether he wanted to take that step to being a top player or whether he was sort of okay where he was. 
that translating to an immediate purple patch when Mourinho first came in for Deli Ali. Um, we saw, I think we a lot talked about like, why is Eric Dyer in this team so often? Like we think Ndombele is probably better. We think Los Celso is probably better. Like why is it Dyer and Winks? And now seeing that interview, you can understand the Portuguese connection, the fact that, you know, Mourinho had liked him for a while. And then as you mentioned as well, um, that moment with Serge Aurier, where Mourinho explicitly says we're changing up the approach and Aria is going to sort of hang further up the field. And that tactical tweak ended up being, you know, instrumental in Spurs 4-2 win over Olympiacos. What was also interesting to me was not only the way that Mourinho conducted himself one-to-one with his players, but also the way that he he's able to understand the chemistry of the squad and he knows he knows what buttons to push when. Because the catalyst, the, the resolution of that Eric Dyer arc in the episode is the fact that Mourinho subs him off in the 30th minute uh, for Christian Eriksen. You see kind of a dejected Eric Dyer, even after the game has been won, he's sitting in the dressing room and he's looking really dejected because he was sort of the linchpin that caused Spurs to sort of gain a little bit more momentum. He was the piece that had to be pulled or sacrificed, in Mourinho's words, uh, in order to propel them forward. And then we saw after that, that Mourinho is sitting in his office talking to his assistant coaches, and he's like, well, I've obliterated Eric Dyer's confidence. Maybe I need to sacrifice. It's this very Godfather-esque moment of like Mourinho is holding court, and he's like, maybe I need to sacrifice Harry Winks in order to give Eric Dyer another shot at proving himself. So it was that sort of like teetering on the lines of, a manager maybe breaking a player's confidence to lift up another player or sitting a player in order to restore belief in one of his players. So it's interesting to see both like the one-to-one connection that Mourinho has, but also the fact that Mourinho is pretty ruthless. Yeah. And and all in all, I think a, a very enjoyable episode from a, uh, a also fan. Serge Aurier playing soccer with little kids. Like what, yeah, what very, what, very cute, very wholesome scene. I think you really got to see like, this is a dude who is like, been much maligned before in the press rightly so he said some pretty horrific things in the past uh, especially in regards to the lgbtq community so i think this went a long way in trying to rehab his personality for the casual soccer fan Uh, yeah and also as as generic as their stadium looks when you're inside of it what a cool facility i mean what an awesome modern uh facility it was very cool to sort of get the walk through there the spiral glass tunnel Oh That's yeah, yeah, sick. yeah, that's yeah. so sick. As a commercial for Tottenham, it is uh, succeeding in every aspect of that. Next episode sees their loss to Manchester United and also their loss at home to Chelsea. So we will be covering that as well as the top six in our final Premier League preview pod. But we hope you've enjoyed this uh, bedtime magic edition of Corner Kick. It has been a pleasure to talk these mid-table clubs with you. I've been Nick Vinden. I'm Caleb Rhodes, Nathan Strauss, and we will see you all next time.